Jesus in Matthew chapter 11 has said some really radical things, if we can be honest about it. Sometimes we become so acquainted with Scripture, so acquainted with the things that Jesus articulates, that the radical nature in the moment of some of these statements, you know, we just skim over. To be there, to listen to Jesus, to be on a hillside or in a synagogue, to hear Jesus say something like what he says in chapter 11, verse 27, when he says, all things have been delivered to me by my Father. And he's referring to God as his Father. He says, no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. I mean, that is a radical statement. No one knows God but me. No one really knows me but God. And the only way you'll know God is through me. Again, Jesus, he's either who he says he is or what an audacious claim. What a statement if it's not true. And yes, within this, there is this idea of the predestination, the sovereignty of God, the selection, election. And yet what I love about it is that Jesus follows this gnarly statement with a fantastic invitation. Picking up in verse 28, he then says, come to me, all. There's not a qualification. There's not a distinction. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. The only biographical statement that Jesus ever makes of himself in all of the gospel narratives you find right here. When Jesus of himself, you want to know me? Biographically, I am this. I am gentle. Some of your translations would have meek and lowly in heart. He says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We unpacked this statement last Sunday, but to recap, one of the things that makes it interesting is kind of the dual nature of what Jesus is saying. Uh, two things that tie together, that work in concert, but have a bit of a distinction. Kind of two interesting invitations. He says, come to me, and then what? I will give you rest. Come, and I want to give you something. This is not something you can earn. This is not something you necessarily deserve. This is a gift that I want to give to anyone, to all, any person who is tired, who is laboring and is exhausted or is experiencing this heavy ladenness that the world is so good at or religious persuasion tends to heap on people. You come to me and I want to give you something. I want to give you a rest. And then he says, aside from giving, he says, take my yoke upon you. And you will find rest for your souls. So come, I want to give you something. And then you take and you continue and you will discover, you will find. Again, Jesus here, he's speaking of the essence, the nature of our relationship with him. And he does it in an interesting set of terminology. He, he describes this yoke. Now, in ancient culture, specifically where Jesus is making these statements, the region around the Galilee, working your way west into the Judean 
uh, the, 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 the more wilderness areas, getting to Nazareth, the areas around Nazareth. This is a very agricultural area. And when we talk about Jesus, the carpenter from Nazareth, it, we place carpentry within our modern context of woodworking, uh, building structures, houses, etc. But in ancient times, within this culture, they didn't build houses out of wood. There wasn't enough wood. Wood was very expensive. It was scarce. And they built houses uh, basically out of mason, stone, mortar. Now, they would have thatch roofs, but it's likely that Jesus' main, uh, the manifestation of, of his carpentry, of his craft, was something essential for the agricultural area in which he lived, and that was a yoke, a wooden yoke that would connect two animals to pull a plow. It was wooden. Jesus was probably an expert at the crafting of a yoke, the building, the development. In the Old Testament, within the law, God was very specific about a yoke. God had all kinds of considerations for, for all kinds of things. God cared about the way in which his people handled the environment, handled each other. One of the things God was very particular about is even the handling of livestock. In fact, the law specifically prohibited the yoking together of different animals. The idea being that if you try to yoke an ox with a donkey, the oxen being much stronger, the donkey being a weaker vessel, A, you're not going to plow straight, and you're going to hurt both animals. So you need to yoke animals of the same kind together. And this principle we find uh, in the spiritual realm, we find it uh, being applied to uh, marriage even, relationships. Paul would say, do not be unequally yoked to an unbeliever. The idea of, of connecting yourself uh, in a relational context to another human being that, that doesn't have the same walk, isn't headed the same direction, doesn't have the same ethic. In the Old Testament, this principle is demonstrated in the yoking together of two of the same kind. Now, what's fascinating is Jesus is talking about our relationship with him. Come to me, I will give you rest. And if you continue, if you take my yoke, you will find rest, this continuation of rest. But it's a yoking together of whom? Yoke yourself to me which kind of defies the logic of the Old Testament principle of yoking because you are not the equivalent of Jesus. <laughs> Jesus is saying, let's team up together. Now, it's the height of audacity at that point to think you're contributing at all in the process. Jesus is saying, take my yoke. It's easy. My burden is light, meaning, <laughs> yeah, I'll do the heavy lifting. And you kind of enjoy the ride. The essence of this relationship with the Lord this yoking together, this oneness, is to yield rest. That's the essence of what Jesus is promising here. He uses the word frequently in these three verses. Rest. Rest for your soul. I will give you rest. You continue, you'll discover rest. Rest, rest, rest. And then it's not an accident that within the context of this idea of rest, that, that Matthew, again, writing loosely in a chronological manner, but more specifically thematically. So Matthew is linking ideas together. This great sermon of Jesus, he then provides us an illustration of this lesson of Jesus, of the idea of rest, and the burdens and the heavy ladenness of religion, and the story that then we're provided in chapter 12. We'll dive into the text. In fact, we're going to read several verses 
we'll work our commentary as best as we can with the time that we have. We might have to come back to some of this next Sunday. But we to- we're told at that time, so as Jesus is making these declarations, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And his disciples were hungry and began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Let's very briefly unpack a little of what's happening here. The disciples, Jesus, they're making their way from town to town. Jesus is teaching. He's ministering. As they're making their way, it's the Sabbath, going from one town to another. They're working their way through a grain field. Again, not an abnormality in this particular area. Again, agriculturally based. And as they're making their way, there's not a Mickey D's around the corner. And so, you know, it's about lunchtime. They're a little hungry. And so the disciples of Jesus begin to glean in the field. Now, the Pharisees who are there immediately point out that this is a violation of the law. And they challenge Jesus on this particular uh, principle. Now, for starters... The, the practice of gleaning in a field uh, was not against the law of Moses at all. In fact, the concept of gleaning you'll find uh, described in, in Deuteronomy 23 is, is, as well as Exodus 20. It was a, a, a kind of a safety net. It was for the sojourner. It was for the traveler. It was even for the poor. That there were parts of a field as you're making your way through and you're hungry that you could take w- what you could eat. Now, you weren't allowed to go through a field and and exit the other side with doggy bags. You know, that was not the idea. It was, I need a snack and I'm hungry. And the the field, I I could eat what I could eat. In fact, a famous story about a gleaner you find with the story of Ruth, where she's going out into the fields of Boaz. And again, according to the law, when you harvested, you would go through the field once. You would plow through it once. But you didn't, you didn't go back again. In fact, you, you, the little bit of leftovers, whatever was behind, was for the poor to go out and to collect, to have sustenance. So what the disciples are doing here, fundamentally, is not against the law. There was provisions for the law. They're not stealing some man's grain. Now, the contention, though, is that they're doing this on the Sabbath day. And therefore, what they're doing constitutes work, and that is a violation of the Sabbath. Now, we'll get to that in a moment. But Jesus said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? And David, of course, was their hero. Jesus adds, He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God, at the time it was the tabernacle, and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath? So they're working, but they're blameless. Verse 6, yet I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. But if you had known what this means, and then he quotes Hosea 6, that I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have commended the guiltless. For the Son of Man is, Jesus declares, Lord of the Sabbath. Now when he had departed from there, he went into their synagogue, and behold, there was a man who had a withered hand. 
And they, again, the Pharisees in context, asked Jesus, saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? They asked this, that they might accuse him. And Jesus said, what man is there among you who has one sheep, and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, and will not lay hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value than is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out. It was restored as whole as the other. And the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy Jesus. The Sabbath. Again, the connecting of the two ideas, Jesus has just promised rest. I will give you rest, and if you continue with me, you will find rest. Rest for the soul. Now, in the Jewish mind, this is what the Sabbath was always about. The Sabbath was about rest. And its basic concept It was instructed for man to work six days and then rest on the seventh, the Sabbat. Again, evening and morning is how God originally defined the day, going back to the Genesis narrative. The Sabbath beginning at at sunset on Friday. In fact, according to uh, the definitions that the Jews would provide, uh, upon the, the, the seeing of three stars, sunset was declared, the Sabbath began, And then it would continue till 6 p.m. on Saturday or when three stars reappeared uh, in the sky. So from from evening to morning the first day, Friday at 6 to Saturday at 6, they were not to work. And this was a principle that, that was described in the law, taking a day of rest. What's interesting about the idea of the Sabbath, taking this day of rest, is that while we see in the Gospels, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, really going to an extreme concerning the Sabbath. I mean, they're serious about this. Like to the point that that they see Jesus' disciples taking a snack, and they're like, whoa, 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 we're in violation here. And then they're like, we're going to trap Jesus. You know, the best way we can trap Jesus is let's bring this guy in with a withered hand. And we know Jesus. He's going to see a need. He's going to meet the need, but he's going to do it on the Sabbath, and we can be like, ha-ha, you're working. Crazy. I mean, the idea is crazy. And what's really crazy about just the extreme perspective that the Jewish people seem to have, the religious establishment seems to have, and the gospel narratives is how little the Jews gave mind to the Sabbath for thousands of years. If you understand the Old Testament in any regard, the Jews never obeyed the Sabbath. And I know the Sabbath principle, work six days, take the seventh off, had other manifestations as well. In fact, according to the law, they were to work the land for six years and then let the land lay fallow for the seventh. Beyond that, they were to, to you know, the economy was supposed to, to work, you know, six sevens, six groupings of sevens, but then the seventh grouping of seven the year of Jubilee, it was, it was declared, all debts were, were canceled out. Everything hit a reset. There was this, this concept articulated all throughout the law of God. Did the Jews ever give mind to the Sabbath? No. It's fascinating. All throughout the Old Testament, it's actually the one law that they, it was meant for them. And they were like, nah. I mean, literally, God, if God came to us and said, hey, listen, I want you to work six years. But that seventh year, I just want you to take it off. Like, take the whole year off. 
In fact, if you will obey me, that sixth year, you will have such a plenty that you won't even have to worry about the seventh. Now, we sit here and we think, that's a great deal. I mean, can you imagine if your boss was like, listen, I want you to work six years. We're going to give you a whole year off the seventh. And then you come back, you'll work. But we're, this is the pattern that we're going to be working. Six days, take the seventh day off. Six years, take the seventh year off. You're like, that's great. Sign me up. No brainer. The Jews, nah, no thanks. No thanks. Defies reason. So why the change? Interesting. Interesting question. Why for thousands plus years, the Jews give little mind, little regard, little respect to the idea of the Sabbath, only for them when we go from Malachi to Matthew, they're like geeked out about it. What's the difference? So going back to this principle of the seventh year. So the Jews never minded that. And according to the prophets, as a result, a consequence of their failure to obey the Sabbath and to give the, the land that year, for 490 years, the Jewish people failed to obey that simple command. And so when Babylon came to Judah, and you have Jeremiah the prophet declaring that judgment is coming, what does the prophet correlate or, or provide as the explanation for judgment? He says, you have not obeyed this Sabbath year. And God was clear about it. So your judgment, you will be 490 years you disobeyed. So you will be removed from the land for, take a guess, 70 years. I'm going to give the land what it's due because you didn't. And so Babylon comes in, crushes them, takes the best of the, of, of, of the people back to Babylon in exile, scatters the people. Everything is in ruins. For how long? Well, Daniel begins to put it all together, and he's like, wait, 70 years, and we'll, we'll be allowed to come back. I won't bore you with all the prophecies, but it all lays out perfectly. Now, you're the Jews, and, and you have been decimated as a consequence of your singular failure. There were other things, but your failure to obey the Sabbath, right? And then, in a stroke of just God's providence and his grace, you are allowed as a people to go back to your land. Seventy years have passed. You can return. And you get back to the land. What at that point do you think as a people you'd be pretty uh, serious about moving forward? The Sabbath. Why? Because your failure to obey it led to incredible judgment. And so now you're like, we cannot do this again. And so the religious leaders... We're like, okay, the law says you're not to work on the Sabbath, but we really need to make sure that we're obeying this principle. And so whereas God just kind of gives this general idea, take a day of rest. The Jews began to add to the law all kinds of qualifications, definitions, extra biblical instruction about what it then meant to work. They had all kinds of crazy things by the time you get to Jesus defining how many steps you could take. One of which was this idea of gleaning. Illegal to do it on the Sabbath. Now, was that God's law? No, it wasn't at all. It was, it was something the religious leaders had added to the word of God in order to what? Safeguard from the slippery slope of sin. Does church do that too from time to time? 
the, the, the motivation is noble. Well, we don't want to sin because of the judgment. But they begin to add things that were not biblical, things that God never said, out of a fear, a fear of sin, a fear of failure, a fear of screwing up again. So here they are, and you've got Jesus. And they start trying to pick on him with the Sabbath, and he's like, you guys have completely missed what the Sabbath was always about. Let me take one step back, kind of point out a few things about the Sabbath. You might not know, but it's important for the context of the way Jesus addresses it and also some of the things that he says and does in these passages. Unique. I say unique. You, you, find, you find this principle a lot throughout the scriptures where concepts essential to the, to the gospel message that you might, let's say, trace back to their precedent being in the law, you come to discover that that's not where the precedent begins at all. As an example, the idea of the priesthood. Okay, the priesthood, it's a big concept we find all throughout Scripture, and you begin to trace it back, and you would say, well, you know, the Levitical order. Aaron was the first priest the running buddy of Moses, and that, that, that's where we, and then we get into the law, and we find all the, you know, the specific designations of who could be priests, and how they were to be priests, and how they were to function, and where they were to live, and what they were to dress, and yet that is not the essence or the precedent, the beginnings of the idea of the priesthood. In fact, you go back to Genesis, go back much further, to this really funky, weird character by the name of Melchizedek, who was the high priest of God, ruling in a town known as Salem, which is probably an early derivative of Jerusalem. And then when we get into the order of, of us being priests before God and the idea of Jesus being our great high priest, the author of Hebrews, he's like, you think this goes back to the order of Aaron? No, 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 no. The priesthood of Jesus goes back to a greater priest than that. And he takes you to Melchizedek. Goes back to Genesis, not the law. When you try to understand the concept of the Sabbath, the Sabbath, Again, yes, the law has a lot to say about it. It's something that's codified in the law. But is that where its precedent begins? No, not at all. In fact, the idea of the Sabbath is as old as it is. Oh, I, I say, there are things that are one day older, two days older, three days older, four days older, five days older, and six days older. Not much. Because the Sabbath began on the seventh day. You go all the way back to the beginning. You go back to the creation narrative. So the idea of the Sabbath, yes, it's articulated in the law. It's, it's, it's codified in the law, but its precedent, its introduction is where? Well, it's all the way back in Genesis. In fact, it's roughly 1,500 years, the idea of the Sabbath. It's introduced before the law ever mentions it. And what's also noteworthy, the Sabbath. Such a big deal to the Jewish people by the time Jesus comes around. But if you take the idea of the Sabbath, you know who never obeyed the Sabbath ever? Who was never instructed to obey the Sabbath? Never mentioned of Abraham taking a Sabbath, or Isaac, or Jacob, or the patriarchs, or Joseph. Again, it's a principle whose precedent is established in creation. It's not codified till much later. The Hall of Faith, the patriarchs, the origins of our faith, there was no Sabbath idea at all in the context in which it was codified in the Levitical order. Now, what am I trying to get at? 
before I get there, let me make another notation. You know, another thing interesting about the Sabbath, such a big deal to the Jewish people. In fact, if, if you really wanted to boil down the tit-for-tat, the battle royale between Jesus and the religious establishment down to one central idea, they thought more about the Sabbath and what the Sabbath meant and what you could do on the Sabbath than virtually any other idea. Jesus is constantly poking holes and kind of making fun of their silliness. Hey, which one of you, if you have a sheet that falls into a pit and it happens to be Saturday, which one of you is not going to go save the sheep? And, and they're all blank. Of course we'd go save the sheep. So what's wrong with me healing someone? You guys are stupid. Like this is silliness. This is nonsensical. You guys are missing it. This big idea. You know, if you're looking for interesting proofs of the resurrection of Jesus, one of the proofs that you can point to uh, amongst many others, most of which are, are probably most notable, but it is interesting, that the church began manifesting within Jewish culture. You know, Jesus said that he didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, he came to fulfill it. That Jesus came with, I don't know if you're aware, Jesus was a Jew, and the early disciples were Jews, the apostles were Jews, they were all Jewish, it began in a Jewish town, Jewish area, it was in Jerusalem, it began with Jews who had all kinds of customs and traditions and are coming out of this very strict religious culture. And yet something happens where you, whereby a group of devout Jews, religious Jews, go from taking their day of worship, being Saturday, to within a week, switch it to the first day. They move it to Sunday. Like, it's, it's fascinating that a group of, of religious Jews completely abandoned their religious upbringing and the notions of the Sabbath, set it aside entirely, and said, we're going to worship on Sunday instead of Saturday. Why? Well, because something very important happened on Sunday that they understood the significance of, that being the resurrection of Jesus. Beyond that, it ends up being the eighth day, which we'll get to. The Sabbath. The Sabbath never instructed to the church. Here you read through... The Gospels, you get to Romans and Acts, and you get to the Pauline epistles, and you get the pastoral epistles. You work your way through. There's never a mandate to keep the Sabbath holy to the church. Never once. It's never mentioned. Now, we have the precedent of, of worshiping on Sunday because of the resurrection of Jesus. That doesn't mean that you can't worship on Saturday or Monday or Tuesday. You should worship every day, not just one day. And yet there was this shift, a seismic shift from Saturday to Sunday because of the resurrection of Jesus. But beyond that, they abandoned the Sabbath for a reason, something that they understood. So let's get back to the precedent. Precedent of the Sabbath finds itself not in the law, but finds itself in Genesis. And what was the precedent? God created in six days. On the sixth day, God made man. And his image and likeness, distinct. Put him in charge of this garden. And on the seventh day, God rested with Adam. God's work was complete. Life for man is it was as God had designed. It was God, it was man, there was no sin, it was perfect. 
It was according to the blueprint, the design. The Sabbath day was God resting because his work to provide life for man was completed. That's the precedent. Now, what happened? Man screwed it all up. Man rebelled against God, ate of the fruit, the curse, sin. And what happened? God's rest at that point ended. Why? Because life for man, as he had designed and created it to be, was no longer. In fact, within the curse, God makes it clear that it would be through the seed of the woman that God would provide a savior to save man of his sin. You see, there was one Sabbath, and that Sabbath was on the seventh day. And from that point, God ceased his work and has been working to redeem man. Until the fulfillment of that was when? Well, resurrection. See, when Jesus rose from the, the grave, he conquered sin, hell, and death. He was victorious. At that point, Jesus could rest again. He went and ascended to the right hand of the Father. You see, the Jews understood, the, the Christians understood, that this idea of the Sabbath wasn't about them taking a day off of work per se. What it was, it was to take a day off of work to recognize something important. That because of their sin, God was working and they could do nothing about it. That they could do no work to fix the problem. That's why they were, as an object lesson, you guys have messed it up. My rest is ended. I'm working. But I want you to take one day a week to remember that this is not the way it's supposed to be. I am actively working, and you can do nothing to fix it. So don't do anything at all. You can't fix it. I will fix it. Which is why then Jesus rises from the dead. He's fixed it. And you no longer see the Sabbath as a concept because it's been fulfilled. Hence, when Jesus says, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. This is about my work. And you stopping from trying to fix anything. Which again is interesting, right? Because it ties back to the idea. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. Come to me, all you who are working so hard to fix something you can't. The relationship with God that's been tarnished. You come to me and I will give you rest. Permanent Sabbath. Rest for the weary soul. I will give it to you. And then you, if you abide in me and you stay connected to me, my yoke is easy, my burden is light, you will find rest, this continuation of rest. Because the essence of the gospel, the essence of your relationship with Jesus is not predicated upon you, your work, your merit, your energies at all, not even your sacrifice, which gives context to when Jesus says, do you not know, have you not read that I desire mercy and not sacrifice. It's not about what you're sacrificing or doing or laying aside, what burdens or labor you place upon yourself because the Sabbath was about you stop working to recognize you can't do anything about it. You recognize that the only person that can fix the problem is me. That I ended my rest and I went to work so that you one day could have it again. And we only find that in Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath. Now, with those things in mind, 
Jesus points to a few illustrations. They say, look, your disciples are not doing what is not, they are doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath. And Jesus points to some illustrations, again, pointing out some of the, the silliness of how they had developed their ideas of the Sabbath and how they had taken it to an extreme. He points back to this story in the Old Testament in 1 Samuel about David. David was the anointed king of Israel. And he had a band of merry, merry men that were running around with him. Saul is trying to track them down. David's hungry. He's at the point of starvation. And they come across the tabernacle, and David sees the showbread, and he asks the priest, can we eat? That was not lawful. But did that, did that negate God's calling on David, God's ordination on his life? No, he ate the showbread. It was unlawful for him to do so. But God preferred human need over religious tradition. And then he points to the priests. You know what the priests did on the Sabbath? A lot of work. <laughs> a lot of work. The priests weren't inactive on the Sabbath. In fact, you, even the holiest days, the Day of Atonement, what were the priests doing? They were butchering animals. I mean, you want to talk about what it takes to butcher a, a cow or an ox? I mean, that's some heavy lifting. And they didn't have chainsaws, you know? The blood from the sacrifice. I mean, they're working on the Sabbath because that was their ordained role and position. But Jesus points out, like, wait a second. They're doing the will of God on the Sabbath, and that's not wrong. So maybe you don't understand the Sabbath, guys. Then he says, one is greater than the temple is here in your midst. Again, the practical you know, examples of Jesus being greater than the temple. You got to keep it in context that at that day, the temple was a shadow of itself. Now, it was quite a, a, an awesome structure, Herod's temple, kind of the remodeling of Zerubbabel's temple, the second temple. I mean, it was, historians say, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world that the, um, the amount of gold, you know, overlaid across these great limestones was so brilliant in the, day, the, the noon, noonday sky that it could be seen from miles and miles away, up on a hill. Everyone ascended to Jerusalem. You could see it. It's awesome and beautiful. But what's notable is that Herod's temple lacked two important things, the Ark of the Covenant and the Shekinah glory of God. God didn't rest in the temple which to me is kind of an interesting thing. When Jesus is on the cross, we're told a few incredible things took place. One of which, when Jesus says, it is finished. What was finished? His work. What happened? The veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom. You know what that would have revealed? That there was nothing inside. There was no ark. There was no presence of God. It was dead religion. One greater than the temple was hanging on the cross, finishing his work. God who became man and dwelt among us. Now, I like kind of where Matthew takes our story. And with the few minutes we have left, we're going to look at verses 9 through 14 again. Because I think there's an application to how we find rest from a, from a very practical standpoint. So again, Jesus, he's in the synagogue which I love. I love this, especially within the context that he's just had the religious people accuse him of, of breaking the law. If anyone could have been like, that church, I'm done with it. 
it would have been Jesus. And yet Jesus still went to church. And he sought to make it a better place. So he goes, there's a man with a withered hand. Now, if you compare this to some of the other Gospels, there is at least an implication that this was a plant. This was a great setup. Again, knowing Jesus, knowing he just couldn't help himself. They place this man in the midst with a withered hand, and they're like, all right, we're going to get you. You're a miracle worker. You're going to perform a miracle. That's going to be work, and you're against the law, and everyone's going to be like, you're great. You're terrible. They're going to reject you. No. Now, Jesus, again, he has kind of this tit for tat with them. He points out how much more value is this man than, than a sheep, points out their nonsensical nature. He declares, therefore, in light of the obvious, it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Like, you guys have taken this thing that was supposed to remind you of a big principle, and you've warped it, you've twisted it. it me what you think it means, it doesn't. And then I think for our purposes here in conclusion, Jesus turns to the man. Now, now note the order here. This man has a withered hand. Now, I, I just to speak real. I was diagnosed this week with what's called ICU neuropathy, critical illness neuropathy, for the two and a half months I was in the ICU earlier this year. When I was reading this passage about a withered hand, because my neuropathy is in my wrists and my hands, I bawling my eyes out studying this passage because I know what it's like to have a withered hand. Not quite as extreme as this guy. I'm not making the equivalency. Although, to his credit, he had a withered hand, which means one of his hands was working great. I'm a little jealous of that guy. Both of mine don't work well. He's got a withered hand. And this word withered, it means it's dried up. Now, we don't know if it was as a result of an accident. Very well, it could have been. Or it could have been the byproduct of some genetic defect upon birth. Either way, his hand is withered. It doesn't work. It doesn't function. The word it literally implies lifelessness. It's parched. There's no life in it. It's dead, okay? So there's this man who has this deadness. He can't do anything. He's unable. And Jesus says to him, stretch out your hand. So Jesus here is giving the man an impossible command. The man can't stretch out his hand. And for those maybe even present in the room, that's kind of a, a brazen thing to say. You want me to stretch out my hand? I can't stretch out my hand. If I could stretch out my hand, it wouldn't have been a withered hand. But what, what, what do we read? And he stretched it out. He stretched it out. And what happened? It was restored as whole as the other. Again, without, without fully understanding the causation of, of, of this handicap, it's hard to, to, to really articulate or, or work extensively the, the nature of the miracle. But just, again, from somebody that's kind of dealing with hand issues, just on a neurological level, this is an amazing miracle. Jesus not only gives him the flesh and the tendons and the nerves instantly, but he wires the brain to communicate through the nerves to the muscles and tissues so that everything works and bends as whole as it should be. I mean, it is an astounding thing. Again, I prayed, Lord, you can do it again. I'll just take one hand if you want to leave the other one. Be great. The miracle is radical. Now, there are some people that will point to this passage and say, 
You see the man's faith? Jesus gave him an impossible command. And the man, with all the energy and effort that he had within himself, tried to stretch out that hand, and it was in the manifestation of his faith that the miracle took place. If the man had never taken the step of faith, the miracle would have never been done. No, I don't think so. Take one step back into a broader application. Jesus articulated a directive via his word. It's interesting. At this point in our travels through Matthew, we've seen Jesus perform a lot of miracles. But what have we seen? Again, there's been no particular pattern, but there's always been some type of physical like, manifestation or a touch. Jesus reached out and touched the leper. Leper, if you're willing, you can make me cleanse. And Jesus touched him and said, I am willing. And immediately the leprosy left him. And we look at how Jesus healed blindness and how he would put his fingers on the, the eyes of the blind or sometimes would spit in them or cake mud upon them. Jesus, with Jairus' daughter, goes into the room. He kicks out the mourners. He takes Peter, James, and John, her parents, and, and he raises her up. He helps her up. But with this man, Jesus doesn't touch him. He speaks to him. His word goes forth, says, stretch out your hand. And what, did, what happened with the miracle? Again, I don't think it was, it was the man's faith as much as it was his obedience to what? God's word. God's word went forth, and he's like, that's impossible. But you know what? Okay, Lord. And in that moment of decision, he obeyed God. He heard God's word. He obeyed God's word. And what happened? He was made whole. Who did the work? The man or the word? It was the word. It's like with computer code. Is it the code or is it the execution of the code? Well, the code. Jesus gives the man a command through his word. Doesn't touch him doesn't do anything miraculous in that sense. He just says, stretch out your hand. His word went forth, and that guy had to make a decision. Am I going to obey God's word? And the moment he decided he would obey, knowing I have no idea how this is going to happen, he was made whole. Again, going back to the, orig the origin, the, the concept, the context of this passage, Jesus, come to me if you're tired, if you're broken, if you're weary, if you're lacking, if you've been beaten down with religion, if you're filled with condemnation, if you're just wore out. I can't do it. Come to me who labor, who are heavy laden. I will give you rest, and then if you take my yoke, you will find a continuation of what nothing else in this world apart from me can give. My word goes forth. I want to provide rest. I am the Sabbath. It's not about what you do. You're yoked to me. You know, some people have this idea of, of the Christian experience that it's, that it's a tag team. You know, that you're playing two on two. I'm, I'm going to be real. I'm a terrible basketball player. Even worse with my arms not working. Doesn't help. I have a four and a half inch vertical. Terrible basketball player. But if it's me and Kevin Durant, we'll take on any of you. And we'll win because he's like 10 feet tall and very athletic. I and mean, we'll beat all of you. 
I don't even think he could score. Now, what would be silly about the exercise if I was yoked to Kevin Durant taking you guys on in a two-on-two basketball game? It would be silly for me to be trying to do anything. Kevin, I got this one, you know? And it falls like three feet in front because I don't have any body mass. I would be stupid. Like, what would be like the most effective strategy yoked to Kevin Durant? Don't even dribble the ball, Zach. You get it, you pass it to me. You, you get it, you pass it to me. Someone doesn't dribble, and you, you pass it to me. All your job is, just get the ball to him and let him do the work. And that is the Christian experience. You are yoked to Jesus, who is Lord of the Sabbath, who wants to give you rest, who conquered sin, hell, death, the grave. He's victorious. It's silly when you have people that are out there trying to live the Christian experience apart from the power and yokeness of Jesus. Oh, I got it, Jesus. Thanks for dying on the cross and saving me. Couldn't have done that on my own. I got it from here. No, you don't. And if you try, you'll be weary and heavy laden. And what will Jesus say when you get worn out, trying to live the Christian experience that you're unable to do apart from him? He'll say, come to me. Come to me. I'll give you rest. Just stop it. Stop trying. Let me do it. The Sabbath. They were so worked up on their obedience that they forgot about their Savior. They were working so hard to earn something that they forgot that it was to be given and enjoyed. And they weren't enjoying. You read everything about the Sabbath with these people. There was no joy in it. It was burden. You're yoked to Jesus. Come. These promises rest for your soul. So, Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. And I pray.